Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hello, and welcome to Why Food. Um, I'm Ethan Frisch, one of your co-hosts. and uh, I'm Jenny Dorsey. And we're going to try something a little bit different this week. Uh, as you know, Why Food is a, a podcast about people who have made major career shifts, who started their, their lives in other industries, and have pivoted into food in one way or another. And we love uh, hearing those stories of entrepreneurialism and adventure and risk-taking and... <laughs> And, um, you know, Jenny and I have, have been hosting the podcast this season. We took over from Patrick uh, this season. And so this is, this is our eighth episode, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, like two-thirds of the way through season number one for us and season number four for the podcast overall. And so uh, we wanted to try something a little different. We, we came on to host the podcast because of our, uh, you know, complicated <laughs> uh, circuitous career paths that have taken both of us in food and out of food and back to food and things unrelated to food, and and uh, we thought it might be fun uh, to interview each other, because I love hearing Jenny's stories, and I... And also introduce ourselves a little further to all of our guests. Yeah, so um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, so... I guess, Ethan's starting. <laughs> I'm starting. <laughs> um, yeah, all right, so here we go. Um, so just a, Ethan, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Uh, can you tell us about your aha moment? Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, <laughs> so my, I have a, a direct trade spice company called Burlap and Barrel. Uh, I started the company last February, so about 13 months ago. Um, my, my career path, um, I started in working for a political foundation right after college, but all through college I'd been really interested in international development. I did a summer internship in Sierra Leone, working for a reproductive health clinic. Um, I spent some time in Kenya and Indonesia in, in college. Uh, I, I spent some time with the Zapatistas in, in Chiapas, studying sort of governance structures there. So I, my, my orientation all through college was very much focused on international politics and, and models of development, uh, mostly focused on actually reproductive health, uh, women's and children's health in the developing world. Um, but I, I was working for a political foundation, and I graduated college in 2008, which was maybe the worst year ever to graduate <laughs> college. That's a tough time, and yeah. and I, the the foundation that I was working for lost their endowment, and I I lost my job. So I had always loved to cook, and um, I must have applied. I decided, all right, this is my chance. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna learn to cook professionally. I'm gonna I'm gonna get my ass kicked and work in a restaurant kitchen, and so. You know, my my 22-year-old self, I was like, I'm going to find a job, no problem. And I applied for a hundred, at least a hundred jobs on Craigslist and, of course, gotten no responses <laughs> at all because what did I know? I mean, I was a good home cook. I loved to cook at home and I cooked, uh, cooked a lot. And I'd grown up cooking with my father in particular. My mother hates to cook and doesn't cook at all. So, like, cooking was, like, very the, the father, son, and my brother <laughs> and, and sister also. But, um, yeah, it was very much my father's domain in, 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 the, in the apartment growing up. And so I... 
I applied for yeah, a lot of restaurant jobs on Craigslist and, and finally got one interview uh, at a place called Allen and Delancey, which at one point was a really good restaurant. Um, it was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan on the corner of Allen and Delancey. I think it had a Michelin star at one point. Nice. But it had lost it by the time I got there. And I showed up for my interview on the day that the, 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 the chef was either fired or quit, depending on who the you talked to. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the executive chef, who was a guy named Ryan Skeen, who was fairly well known at that point in the New York City restaurant scene and had a certain reputation, which I won't get into here. But um, uh. he, I never met him, actually. He had walked out that afternoon, and I showed up for my interview. And my understanding was that there was a new chef who'd been waiting in the wings and, and a transition taking place, but it happened a little earlier than anybody expected. And so I showed up for my interview, and the new chef, uh, an awesome guy named Tom Block, um, was looking a little shell-shocked, said, can you start right now? <laughs> and I had never worked in a restaurant. I'd probably have never even been into a restaurant Did kitchen before. Did you have before. any equipment with you? Uh, no, I, like, I, li- I literally, I, it was, I was living in, in Chinatown in Manhattan at that point, and so I like ran home and wrapped up like my old kitchen knives. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna have my, he was like, go get your knives. I was like, what does that even mean? So, <laughs> so I went home, and, and I got some knives. And, and um, the other thing that worked in my favor in that particular case was, I I speak Spanish, and the only people who hadn't walked out of the kitchen were the, the Mexican dishwashers and prep cooks. And they were the only ones who knew where anything was. Like, we, mm-hmm. we, we rolled up into this kitchen, the chef included, to cook a menu we had never even seen before, let oh alone God. cook, uh, a staff of people who had never worked together before, and in a kitchen nobody had been into, literally entered, and we had never <laughs> entered the kitchen before. Um, um, so the, the, the prep cooks... Uh, you know, were our guides like, where's the spatula? Where's the black pepper? Or like, where's how does anything work in this place? Where uh, were you guys booked that night? What day of the yeah, day week was it? Uh, I don't know. It was third. It was a. It wasn't. I like in my memory, it was slammed. Like in my memory, <laughs> I I sweated buckets. I worked my ass off. You know, it was probably like a Tuesday night. And we did twenty five covers or something. <laughs> but I'd never been in a restaurant kitchen before. And um, yeah, uh, I so I just had a, an amazing experience there. Uh, the chef was uh, incredibly patient and supportive in the way that chefs, you know, it's the the roundabout way that chefs can be. So I got screamed at a lot, uh, but but I learned a lot also, and I built some great relationships. And I worked my way up through the ranks. I started Garmanger and Pastry, which is or Garmanger particularly, and then um, making a pastry menu that somebody else had put together. Um, and then worked my way up and was on the pasta station and the fish station and the meat station and and eventually was promoted to pastry chef. Um, started working on a menu redesign. How did you close to a year later? How, how did you get into pastry? Like yeah, they, that's like a it was yeah. I mean, it was always my my experience of pastry was always like um, uh, pastry at that restaurant in particular was sort of an afterthought. It was really mm-hmm. the menu that that Tom put together was was like supposed to be an encapsulation of the Lower East Side's culinary and cultural history. So we had some Chinese food, we had some Jewish food, we had some Italian food, we had some I don't know all kinds of random stuff mixed together. And pastry, he was never that interested in pastry, so it was always uh, it was never it was never a huge priority. But I was making these recipes that other people had uh, a pastry menu that somebody else had designed. A chef named Soa Davies who has gone on to other amazing adventures. She was uh, the she was worked on Maple, the uh, oh, yes. David Chang's. Uh, anyway, um, an incredible teacher and and who really taught me a lot about how to make pastries, which is an incredibly difficult and so challenging, challenging thing to do. But I just did a lot of research. I don't know. I spent a lot of time on Epicurious and and googling recipes, and you know, I'd find fifteen different recipes for a. I don't know if this, if we wanted a butter cookie of some kind, I'd find 15 different butter cookie recipes and find the happy medium between them all and just try it out. And that was that's what was so great about that restaurant kitchen in particular was that it was really flexible and and I was given a lot of leeway to to just like teach myself how to do the things that I wanted to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do, which I didn't know, was make ice cream. Um, and there was a beautiful ice cream, this like Carpajani, like pff, incredible ice cream machine. I still dream about the <laughs> ice cream machine that we had at that restaurant. And so when the restaurant closed, um, I actually, I went to work at Tabla, the, which was a Danny Meyer Indian restaurant and, and learned a lot of what I know about cooking with spices there from a chef named Floyd Cardoz. Um, but I also at the same time was in the process of starting an ice cream company because I'd been making all this ice cream at Ellen Delancey and wanted to keep doing it. And so I, um, why do you love ice cream so much? You know, I, 
the the thing is, I don't really love ice cream in particular. I don't. I mean, it's good. Like, fine, ice cream is great. But what I <laughs> what I loved about making ice cream was was the flexibility of it. Was that like anything that you can infuse into liquid, you can turn into an ice cream. Mm-hmm. So the obvious things are like tea and coffee and spices and things like that. But you can also um, yeah, I mean, anything you can imagine. So on the ice cream cart that I eventually started uh, with with a, a co-founder, we we were doing things like um, we did a, a Chinese roast duck ice cream. That's my favorite one. Um, I still want you to make it so yeah, I can eat it. It was such a pain to make. <laughs> but but I, I, I looked at ice cream like a, a stock base, right? If mm-hmm. you were going to make a, a, duck, a, a duck stock, how would you do it? And I just swapped out the, the water that you would start with with the stock for milk and cream. So I took the bones of the duck and I added ginger and star anise and cinnamon and you know, like the classic Chinese five spice uh, combination, which is actually very sweet, um, and, and turn it into an ice cream. So anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But the ice cream, <laughs> the ice cream company was, a, um, uh, was an activist ice cream cart. It was called Gorilla Ice Cream. Uh, we rocked New York the summer of 2010, mm-hmm. um, and we made all kinds of flavors inspired by revolutions and political movements around the world. We sold them at markets around the city. We donated 100% of our profits to the Street Vendors Project. If, if you're a regular listener of our podcast, you'll know that we had Matt Shapiro from the Street Vendors Project on uh, several episodes ago. Um, and uh, yeah, really, the intention was was to use ice cream to talk about complicated, challenging topics that, you know, I don't want to listen to uh, someone give me a lecture on the Indian, the Maoists of Central Eastern India and, and the economic and social and racial problems around around the violent uprising that, that has taken place on and off for, for many decades. But if, if you do it through ice cream, maybe it's a little bit more accessible. Did you feel like people listened? No, not at all. And, okay. I, and that was as much my fault. That was more my fault than anybody else's. I think the theory that I'm workshopping is that food is a really appealing sort of door opener, like entry point for activism, but that it struggles in its implementation, that food is distracting, right? Mm-hmm. Like somebody's eating, they want to eat, they want to focus on what they're eating, they want to enjoy it. And well, what did you want people ideal in the ideal world if they were eating the ice cream and hearing your story? What did you want them to take action? Did you want them to research on their own? Yeah, I think that was the, the, <laughs> the aspect of the business that we didn't fully flesh out. I mean, as I'm sure as many of our listeners know, and and uh, you know, it's sort of common knowledge. Starting a business is so much work, so like, complicated. It just takes like so much time and effort and thought, and and so there's a real conflict between the vision that you're trying to work towards, the the like grand goal, and the just day-to-day grind of everything that has to be done, especially in a business where you're manufacturing food. Mm-hmm. And so we were renting space in a restaurant kitchen, The resta- actually the restaurant that is now Mission Chinese. <laughs> Previously, it was a place called Broadway East, and we rented their kitchen overnight uh, or in the off hours, or they were closed temporarily, I don't know, like whatever finagled situation we came up with. We were sharing it with a couple of other uh, ice cream and macaron companies that um, have gone on to do cool things. But um, yeah, I mean, the, you, the vision gets lost in the grind of manufacturing ice cream. And that this was also my experience working in restaurants. And um, Jenny, we'll see what you mm-hmm. think about this too. too. But um, you know, a restaurant job is is a high is a manufacturing job essentially, mm-hmm. even at the even at the high end. And it's maybe like a fancy it's, assembly line. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a very high skill manufacturing job. Like it's a lot of work and training and practice and and not to downplay the the skill of a of a line cook because I mean it's incredible. Like a, a line cook who knows what they're doing is like magic to watch to mm-hmm. watch. It's like acrobatics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's essentially a manufacturing job. You're you're implementing somebody else's creative vision. Make the plate the, exactly the way that they want it a thousand times exactly the same. Um, it's not, I think a lot of people have this vision of restaurant, uh, cooks as being these very creative yeah. and, and for sure some of them are and, and, but the day to the reality is the day to day of the work is not creative. It's, it's very repetitive. So if you could go back, how would you change your yeah, activist ice cream cart? question. Cards? No, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, we, we, we ran it for a summer. Uh, you know, we you can't sell ice cream from a cart in New York city after <laughs> September. Anyway, we were honored, uh, to, to be invited to go to the Vendies. We were finalists for the Vendi Awards, which is a big street nice. vendor uh, food food award. Um, and then we were sort of faced with a decision. Do we try to scale it up, get into supermarkets, find a co-packer? You know, the decision mm-hmm. that, that a lot of food entrepreneurs come to or, or drop it. And I had already gotten into grad school to start that fall for international development to sort of go back to my original interest. Um, and we just decided to, 
to put it to bed that that it was quirky and weird and had funny conversations and uh, or inspired funny conversations and got a, some funny press and um, that that was exactly what we wanted to, it to be and and. Uh, we and decided, that's okay. And that's okay, right. Like mm-hmm. that, the business had accomplished some of what we wanted it to accomplish. Um, and that, yeah, that was, that was the end of it. Uh, so I went to grad school and I cooked all through grad school part-time in London working at a, a gastropub. And then... Um, Did you make scotch eggs? I, you know, I never made scotch. I must have made them once or twice, but I was on the Sunday roast shift, which is oh. a very important thing in British cuisine. What is that? So I was living in London and working at a pub in East London and British people t- seem to have these like um, eating habits or patterns that are much more structured. I'm going to make this sweeping generalization here, <laughs> so bear with me. They're more structured than American patterns. So like the tradition of a Sunday roast is um, you got a big piece of roast meat with gravy and potatoes. Oh, like a London broil? I guess, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, Yorkshire puddings. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I was on the Sunday roast station, you know, roasting pork and, and beef and steaming vegetables in tons of butter. I had a really funny conversation when I first started this job. Um, I had worked in, you know, like decent restaurants in New York, Tabla and Alan Delancey, where the, the, the style was that vegetables were crunchy, had this, like, felt like they had come from had something. Life yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then moved to London and sent out a plate, must have been my first shift or something, sent out a plate where the vegetables were crunchy and it got sent back. And uh, For being too crunchy. For being, for being raw, I believe, is the <laughs> word that the customer used. Like, That's a harsh term vegetables right there. are raw. And the, the chef pulled me aside and said, I don't know where you worked before, but... But the way we do it is he took a fork and he squished the Brussels sprout oh, or oh. the carrot. I think it was a Brussels sprout. He squished the Brussels sprout with a fork. And the, the Brussels sprout was so mushy that it like <laughs> came up through the tines of the fork. Uh, and he said, if you can't squish the vegetable through a fork, then it's not done. Is there a point to eating vegetables? <laughs> yeah, right? Um, so... So I was working in, in this gastropub at the same time that I was studying international development in London. And um, and then from there, um, moved to Afghanistan, where I worked for a, a big nonprofit on um, an infrastructure and local governance project. So I was overseeing the construction of 200-odd uh, infrastructure projects, mostly schools, but lots of roads and bridges and clinics and micro-hydro power plants and all kinds of other things where uh, the communities that we were working in, they would go through a, a, a process to identify the infrastructure needs of the community, and they would decide we need a school and we need a, a bridge or something, and they had a certain budget to work with. And where was the budget coming from? Uh, that government? project, so NGOs mostly get their, their funding from governments or foundations, things like that. That project was funded by the German government. Oh, interesting. Um, so I spent a lot of time in very rural areas of northeastern Afghanistan, way up in the mountains, and that sort of, in a circuitous way, I didn't obviously didn't know it at the time, but uh, dovetailed into my current business, my spice company. We source a wild cumin from the same province, from those mountains, the Hindu Kush mountain range, um, because I was, you know, I had I loved to cook, and I had I was there for work, and so obviously I was exploring the mm-hmm. the local ingredients and what do people like and what do people cook, and there was incredible honey and amazing fruit, apricots and cherries and all kinds of other things. But there was this cumin that really blew me away. Um, and did you meet them at the time or did you go back because you remember the cumin to find the suppliers? So the way that we, so we work, the company, Burlap, my company, Burlap and Burl works with farmers in 10 or 12 different countries at this point. Um, the cumin that we source, I have a friend, a former colleague who's from that province and he and his cousin, Help me collect it's, it's helped me source it from it's not farmed it, it really does grow wild and it's harvested by shepherds who are out in the mountains with their sheep and as they're wandering around in the mountains they pick some cumin along the way and Do they, they sheep eat cumin you know it's a good question I, I think sheep eat pretty much everything is that why sheep and cumin like lamb you and know, cumin taste good together I had it's never thought about that that's a really great <laughs> idea the variety, the sh- yeah, the sheep that, that they have in Afghanistan have these really big butts, like these big fatty, Ooh, okay. like a camel has a fatty hump. These sheep also have a fatty hump, but it sort of hangs off the back. Um, and so one of the, the local, one of the delicacies that you would eat in these little roadside restaurants in northeastern Afghanistan are 
uh, like grilled sheep fat. Um, oh, that so sounds like, kind of good. Yeah, or or you'd have a kebab with on the skewer. You'd have a little chunk of meat and a little chunk of fat, and a little chunk of meat and a little chunk of fat alternating. Where the as it grills, the fat renders and sort of coats the mm. meat. So whether you eat the fat or not, at least it's like it's all over the the rest of the mm. meat, and it's really really good. Lamb fat is really good. Yeah, really good with muscles. I discovered. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, and that's, and then I moved to the Middle East. I worked for Doctors Without Borders, uh, logistics, managing logistics for a maternity clinic that they were running on the Syrian-Jordanian border for uh, Syrian refugee women who were living outside of the refugee camps in northern Jordan. What inspired um, your interest with uh, reproductive rights, children's rights, women's rights? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I... I, I sort of fell into it. I got an internship in college with an, an organization that... Um, was working on maternal health care in the developing world and just realized that it was this totally um, under-resourced and un- unfortunately unglamorous um, aspect of international development mm-hmm. where there's a lot of a lot of funding put into, I don't know, bigger, more glamorous projects, but, but for all of the reasons that uh, women's issues are, are under-supported everywhere, they are likewise under-supported in, in the development world. So... Uh, we, yeah, I mean, women are all kinds of legal restrictions and all kinds of uh, issues around access and money and, and lots of, lots of problems. But I felt like a, there was a real need around reproductive health care. Um, and it was also very tangible. I mean, that was the coolest thing about, about working with Doctors Without Borders that like we were delivering something like 25 or 30 babies a week. Wow. I was working in the ho- like work in the hospital. You hear you hear twenty five or thirty babies <laughs> a week, and occasionally you'd like get the the moment where you hear the 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 mother, the delivering mother, screaming, and then you'd hear the baby scream. Like the moment, the first yeah, the first yeah. moment of the of the baby's life, and so it's a very tangible, very rewarding uh, area to work in. Um, if there was like an, a thing that you could do in terms of if you wanted, if you could tell someone or anyone, um, like an educational component about women's rights or children's rights that you just want everyone to know that you feel is not being communicated enough, what would it be? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, that's a really uh, big question. Um, There's a lot of them. A yeah, lot of things there are a lot of them. Educated. I mean, my particular experience and my work experience was in reproductive reproductive health and less in reproductive rights, which is a, also mm-hmm. it's a whole other a whole other area of expertise. But just the logistics of of maternal health care. Um, there are just so many things that go ro- that can go wrong in the delivery process, and even in the U.S., where there, I mean, there are obviously huge issues with the healthcare system. But there are f- most people have pretty easy access to hospitals, whether they can pay for them or not is a, another question. But the hospitals are are like they exist. Um, Whereas, you know, looking at, at places in rural Afghanistan or rural Sierra Leone or, or, or a refugee camp in Kenya where I spent some time, like they're just, it's just hard to get to the healthcare when you need it. And, and when a baby is being born, that baby's coming out. Yep. And, <laughs> it's and, not waiting for yeah, you. Yeah, right. And so um, they're just figuring out ways to make literal access, physical access to healthcare facilities uh, is is critically important and, and a lot of organizations are doing interesting work sort of redefining that paradigm where instead of trying to or instead of in- expecting the, the delivering mother to come to the clinic herself networks of community health workers or um, just different systems to, to give a, a woman the support that she needs in in the process of giving birth um, and you also met your girlfriend in Afghanistan. I did. We, she was working for another branch of the same organization, uh, working on uh, cultural heritage and, and preservation. Uh, they were restoring historic uh, tombs and mosques and um, shrines around the country. And she was working on on music and fine arts and, and Islamic calligraphy. And um, I mean, Afghanistan, every country in the world, but. I'm I'm partial to Afghanistan, but uh, <laughs> has such an incredible cultural, rich cultural history, and you know, w- war is terrible for everything. It's mm-hmm. terrible for the people, but it's also terrible for cultural history, where where buildings get destroyed, where artifacts are lost, um, cultural records are are just disappeared or destroyed, or or you just lose track of them. And so, um, that's another aspect of what we're trying to do with Burlap and Barrel is is think about food as a, a cultural. Uh, an element of cultural heritage and an element, I guess, a, a cultural right. Um, 
which gets into some conversations that you and I have had on yep. the podcast about appropriation and who has the right to eat and cook what food, mm-hmm. which which is and a, who gets to make money off of it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so then, yeah, that was that was my non-food uh, career, and then various other things happened in my life. But um, <laughs> I I started Burlap and Barrel, and and the goal was very much to to bridge those two sets of experiences and interests to to connect the work that I'd done with rural communities around the world with my my friends in in the restaurant world in New York City um, well how what what was uh, what was the original thought of burlack and barrel you wanted to source spices or you wanted to yeah, yeah. I, to, I don't know I think the original thought of any business is never the the, fun, the <laughs> ultimate thought of the business Um yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd been looking, after having had the experience with my ice cream company, I'd been looking for a long time for a way to, to start my own thing again. Um, and uh, the cumin, really, like that just kept coming back to me. That mm-hmm. um, This incredible ingredient that I had fallen in love with and I had brought home and shared with my friends and whoever, uh, uh, chefs that I knew. And, um, you know, being grown or, or in this case being harvested by by pretty rural farmers without a lot of access to markets outside of their immediate vicinity. Um, Certainly not a lot of connection to the value that somebody halfway around the world would place on this thing that they were harvesting. Um, And it just seemed like, like the obvious step was to connect those two groups of people. So a chef who would really value an incredible product and the, and the farmer or the the forager who was collecting it from the field or, or growing it themselves. Um, and so that's really what we try to do. I, I, I think of the company and myself really as a representative in both directions of, of chefs and, and, and home cooks in the U.S. to farmers around the world, but likewise of the farmers to, the, to, to chefs. Um, so, so even when I travel, I always like, I'm, I'm going to Guatemala um, to meet with our, our partner, Cardamom Farmer, and I have a whole bunch of pictures on my phone. I do this when I, when I spend time with our partner farmers around the world. Like show them pictures of the dishes that chefs are, are making mm-hmm. with their spices that just like we as consumers often don't know very much or don't know anything about where our spices come from or who grow them. Likewise, the farmers, spice farmers around the world don't know anything about who's using their products or how they're being used or, or what they're looking for. The, the, um, the, the standards are often pretty arbitrary, size and color and mm-hmm. not really connected to flavor or um, different flavor profiles or, or how a chef is actually going to use them or how the farmer really wants to grow them. So, And in Guatemala specifically, oh, there's this interesting whole, conundrum. That's of, a whole other thing, which we will have to save for another episode because uh, it's almost Jenny's turn um, <laughs> to, to talk. But um, yeah, it's it's been really fascinating the last year doing this really deep dive into the world of international food supply chains and logistics, which was not something I had ever dealt with before. Um, and and really trying to build new supply chains, new in the sense that this is not the way that most spices are transported or... Mm-hmm. Or, or, um, or at the volume. Yeah. yeah. But then also, but also very, very old. I mean, that's the cool thing. Like this, the business model that I'm trying to build is, is the, maybe the most fundamental. Um, right? Like buy, take something that grows really well in one place, take it to another place where it doesn't grow and... And give it to somebody who who wants it. I mean, that's the that's one of the, the oldest business models in the world. Mm-hmm. You're like the new Silk Road. I guess. I, I guess. I I would rather I would rather have I would rather be not be in in the uh, you know like I don't. Uh, what am I trying to say? I think what the farmers are doing is incredible, and I think what chefs are doing is incredible. And my my role is really about bringing them together. It's yeah, but I think you are adding value by also telling stories that they cannot tell to each other. Well, you they, know? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm, I'm trying to help them tell those stories to each other. Um, we'll uh, do a quick break, and then I guess I will share my story. Stay tuned. Tina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. 
From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated palm house, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. And we're back. Uh, you're listening to Why Food. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And if you're just tuning in, we're doing something a little bit different this week. Um, Jenny and I are both career changers and transitioners in, in many ways and at many times in our <laughs> yes. careers. And so we thought it might be fun to um, interview each other for this episode. So uh, it's Jenny's turn now. Woohoo. Uh, so yeah, Jenny, tell us tell us your story. How did you How did you wind up here in this recording studio today. Well, um, I've had a slightly more linear path, I guess, than Ethan. Um, I started my career af- uh, after college. Um, I'm from Seattle, originally from Shanghai, but grew up in Seattle. Um, and I went to school at the University of Washington for business. I was actually I used to be a marketing major, but I did a lot better in my fan- finance classes, so I ended up dropping dropping my marketing major, going into finance. You, and were, you were also a, a fencer, weren't you? I was. I was a competitive fencer. I fenced for a wonderful organization called Salt Oriole Seattle. Um, I went to the Junior Olympics. I did um, uh, NCAA, uh, not NCAA, um, uh, North American Cups. It was a. Uh, I learned so much about myself in fencing, I think, and a lot of my competitive nature, but also kind of w- a lot of what held me back in fencing was something that I could um, learn again to apply to my culinary career. I think I was so worried about what everyone else thought and um, how I looked to other people, and it really held me back both on the metal podium as well as in my life. Um, and I, I think that was a big impetus to jump into food, which I guess I'll get to in a second. But yeah, I, I went into consulting. I went into fashion consulting specifically. I was in a small group, and I, I thought fashion was super cool. I had actually been offered an internship um, at Condé Nast, and uh, originally I, you know, that was like the the dream. I just wanted to work at Vogue and meet Anna Wintour, and I, I would still love to meet Anna Wintour, but um, I just realized quickly that fashion was not for me. I'm also super unfashionable. If you ever meet me, I'm like not the most fashionable person, but I think I had this big facade that I was like, I was going to be super fashionable. I'm going to wear all my makeup, even though I have no idea how to do my makeup, and literally at one point, I owned so much denim. I had like $1,500 worth of money in denim that I never wore. And it, it just felt like every month I was like stuffing clothes into this like hole in my heart. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a heavy <laughs> statement. Was Did you feel like fashion was something that you chose or, or did is yeah. that just a, was that a default, like a, an accident that you fell into fashion? I think, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, we had a we had Scott Norton of Sir Kensington's on uh, last week, and he said something that it's like people are really good at rationalizing. And I think it was like I didn't choose it, but then I decided that I chose it. You know, um, I saw it in fashion magazines, and I was like, you know, if I do this, people will think I'm cool. And then later, I was like, no, I wanted to do that as a way to not say that you know the outside world is actually telling me what to do with my life. Um, but it wasn't true. I, I chose it because I wanted. Or I didn't choose it. I kind of fell into it because I, I was trying to achieve this uh, this glamorous look that I didn't have. And I, I realized it pretty... I think I realized it early on innately, but I couldn't say it, you know? Like, there's also this thing that if you admit something, then suddenly it becomes true. So um, suddenly then you have to own up to the fact that you're miserable and you're... I went to a hypnotherapist at some point for binge eating because I was having problems with my weight because I was not eating or then eating like 12 salmon fillets and it was a whole mess. It was a whole mess and I had to get out of it. So um, I did as any finance risk averse person would do. I applied for business school and I was like, yeah, you know, if I get into business school, um, it's going to be so chill. I'm just going to take a little break, go to business school and then I guess I'll go back into consulting. So I applied early decision to Columbia. I got in and like, I once I knew I got in, I was like, all right, I can just quit my job. So I still need the money. So I was like kind of still working um, and decided to go to culinary school at night. 
and I went to the Institute of Culinary Education. Um, I always loved food. I'd taken classes there, and I'm not really one to, person to do it halfway. So I was like, I'm going to get this diploma. I'm not going to use this diploma, but I'm going to get this diploma. Were you were you a good cook uh, before no. going to business school? or No, I was a terrible cook. I remember <laughs> the things that I used to cook. Like, I would boil stock. Like, that's just like, oh, it hurts me so bad. I, can re- I remember myself boiling stock like crazy. Um, I would undersalt things. I would salt the pasta water at the wrong time. I did, like, everything everything wrong basically um and I didn't really understand how flavors work together I think um I just liked salt and then I would like put some flavors but no I was a terrible cook also I as part of my internal spiritual journey I went gluten-free for a year because I pretended to myself that I had an allergy to restrict what I was eating because again had weight issues so yeah there was that going on anyway um terrible cook, learned how to cook. And, but more importantly, I think in culinary school, I just learned that everyone around me was also a career changer. A lot of them were older than me. Um, I had always been the youngest in every educational setting. I went to college early. Um, so I was always like a couple years younger than everyone else. And, um, it all of a sudden realized like, wow, these people, maybe they don't have, um, the educational background that I do, but these are good people and so many of these people I would have just kind of overlooked and been like whatever they're different from me but we all have these universally come like you know empathetic things about each other that are important and interesting and these are some of my good friends now like I feel like I learned a lot about what actually makes a person a good person and less um and it's not really what they have on paper and I, that was just a lesson I it took me a long time to learn well and that must have been it must have been hard switching between such different academic and social environments, Columbia Business School during the day and, and culinary school at night. Yeah. How did you, you know, code code switch or how did you move between those two, two spaces? Uh, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I finished culinary school three days before I started at Columbia. And it was a terrible transition. I mean, I came from this like fuzzy hive, like making. So one of the things that um, ICE used to do is you have this grand buffet. So you make all this food for your friends and family and everyone cheers and everyone's eating and drinking. And I was like hugging everyone and crying and all that stuff. And then I started at business school where everyone's like, yeah. Uh, my dad does this. I do this. I used to work at Goldman. I make so much money and I just, I hate it. I hated it. I hate it. Orientation. I hate all orientations. I'm just, <laughs> I, I like, it's so cultish and I just, everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid and everyone's talking and it's not about even good Kool-Aid. It's no, <laughs> it's bad Kool-Aid. It's like crappy, like mellow yellow or whatever that <laughs> gross drink was from the nineties. I mean, I, I just, and the, and the thing that was really dispiriting to me is, um, and no, I'm not disparaging against many of my classmates who I, I like and adore, um, some of them more than others. But <laughs> but uh, there, there was a good segment of people that I felt they weren't thinking for themselves. And I hear them not thinking about themselves or like, you know, they're so easily influenced by what everyone else is saying, what everyone else is thinking. And these are people that are not, they're not, you're not 20 anymore. You know, in college, you kind of have a pass to do that. You're in your 30s or mid 30s. Some of you are married and have kids. And all of a sudden we want to go out and bro out on a Thursday night for rugby happy hour. Like, I'm just not on board with that. Um, So I ended up just completely tanking my first semester. I was super, um, like, not there. I didn't want to be there. I was unhappy. I didn't meet my husband, though, so. Wasn't all bad. Good good job. (laughs) But um, I got called into the dean's office, and she was like, you don't want to be here. And I was like, correct. <laughs> but but I do because I'm paying a lot of money to be here. And she's like, I think maybe you should think about if you want to take some time. Um, and my immediate reaction is like, no, like I got to do this. Like, I, you know, I have to, I have to get this degree. But as uh, more as I thought about it, I was like, yeah, yeah, I should take some time. So I kind of on this like sabbatical still sort of, but um, yeah, I was allowed to go on this uh, spiritual sabbatical and I took a year off and started working different restaurants, went traveling for a little bit, um, tried to find myself and what I cared about and also parcel out the people that I wanted to be friends with. And what was your first restaurant job like? Um, it, you know, it, it's kind of like what you said earlier. I remember the job being super challenging, but when I think about it, uh, I was working four o'clock PM to like 
11 p.m. Those are light hours. Yeah. I mean, compared to like 10 a.m. to like 1 a.m. Like I had it easy and I was complaining all the time. I was like, my feet hurt. The walking is cold. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I was awful. And I, I mean, my executive chef, I, I worked at a place called Market Table in West Village. This is still there. The executive chef I worked under, David Stanridge, is now the executive chef at Clo- um, Cafe Clover down the street. And he is like the nicest guy. He taught me everything. Any question I had, he would field because he also was a career changer. And he was just like, you know, whatever you want to do. I got to go work all the stations. I got to work brunch, uh, which is the worst. Everybody will (laughs) tell you it's the worst. Um, And just like learn. And one of the things I learned besides obviously just being able to cook things better and that the fact that culinary school is nothing like being in a restaurant is working with um, a lot of Hispanic um, prep cooks, line cooks, sous chefs, and just listening to their stories and being like, shit, I have no, like, I don't have it hard. I need to, I need to stop complaining. Like, they work so hard. I've never been more appreciative of a group of people. Once I came in, because I had a fight with my then boyfriend, now husband, and they were like, hey, pasa. They let me go home early. Like, you know, and I was like, I don't even deserve you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just learned a lot about, like, the kind of people that I wanted to surround myself with. But yeah, after a couple years, I bounced around different jobs. Um, I cooked for a while. I also did R&D at Le Pan Quotidien. Um, that was interesting. I learned a lot about corporate food, um, R&D, training, getting um, rolling out mass menu changes across three different countries, um, the U.S., the U.K., and France. And that was that fed, fed nicely into my logistical side, my finance side. And from there, I kind of went a more consulting route, started doing consulting here and there for small businesses, a lot of recipe testing, a lot of recipe development. Um, and it was, it was fun for, I think, for a few years that... I think a lot of people like that or want to go into that and it's there are many ups because you get to play with all these ingredients and essentially you know cook on someone else's dime but at the same time you don't always get to cook what you want to cook yeah um or you have to cook a watered down version of things that you might care about um that is a real awkward thing that i have to face sometimes if i'm writing um recipes for a client that has an audience that uh has, you know, doesn't have access to certain ingredients or maybe doesn't have the palate for it, or we assume they don't have the palate for it, then you make a, a Thai curry. But is it really Thai? Like what, like it, it's, and then I'm not Thai and then it's just kind of weird. Or we like a sweet and sour chicken and it's not sweet and sour chicken, like actual Chinese sweet and sour chicken. Then it's like, am I betraying my culture? Like, I, I don't know. There's yeah. just, there's awkward questions there. Um, so but, what do you, is that where you're still, is that how you spend most of your time now? Um, I would say I spend maybe like 25% of my time still doing some of my legacy, I call them my legacy clients, clients that I have good relationships with and kind of ongoing work. But in the last year, um, I transitioned uh, over to doing some more food plus tech stuff. Randomly at acupuncture, I had this epiphany <laughs> <laughs> that I wanted to do augmented reality, virtual reality, and with food and I didn't know what that meant but I had just went home and told my husband that that's what I wanted to do and he was like okay sure sure my husband is like the most supportive person um over the last couple years we also started a pop-up series called Wednesdays which is still going on and we grew that from eight people in our living room to like hundreds of people at a time in different restaurants uh different venues across New York and San Francisco we've gotten written up in Basically every publication that matters, except for the Times. I, Times still needs to come. You, you just got uh, recommended by Eater like yes. a, last week or the, yes. a couple of weeks ago, right? Eater just wrote about us, um, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, like I mean, that was that was really exciting. I think um, a lot of that was also just a creative outlet for me after working at Market Table, and then I worked at a couple fancy restaurants. Ooh la la! I worked at Atera. <laughs> There's just two stars here in New York, and Atelier Crenn and SBQR. But um, I just wanted to do my own thing. So that's where the pop-up came about. And that's also where the AR and VR stuff is, is like, what am I really doing? I I don't want to be sitting around, or not sitting around, no one's ever sitting around, standing around, (laughs) pacing around um, all day, making little plates of food for rich people. That's uh, not how I want to spend my life. So what does my food mean? What am I going to do with it? And I wanted to bring that into social good somehow. Um, Wednesdays was very much how do you get people
people to be vulnerable around strangers and talk to them. And we, we ask people to answer these hard questions before they even show up to our events. Like, uh, what's your biggest failure? You know, they have to answer that and they can't, or else they can't even come. And it's interesting what people say. Some people, they say they never fail. That's always my favorite answer. Do they, do they still get to come or do you like <laughs> reject? I mean, no, they still get to come, but then I would love to see what other people say to that. You know, like if, if someone tells you they've never failed in their, li- their life, like what, wh- what do you do? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm really cu- like, I, yeah, I don't know. So the, I think that's an interesting interaction right there. I want that to happen. Yeah. Um, but we've had people open up. I mean, one of the questions we also ask is, what is a societal norm that you want to change and how would you change it? So, so Ethan, what is a societal norm that you want to change and how would you change uh, it? Racism. Racism, okay. Uh, how do you change it? I have no idea how to change it. I think there are some really cool organizations that are doing great work on changing it. I don't pretend to be an expert <laughs> on it, but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunately a norm and needs to be changed. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, I, and just how, like, just starting the conversation around that is important to me. And I think one of the things I want to do with my food is, hey, I can sort of kind of try and build this community around food, but um, I also want the food specifically to speak to that. So um, food plus AR and VR is my kind of this new project of how do I use technology, how do I use both VR film as well as AR, like augmented visuals on top of plate to tell a bigger story around um, racism. Racism is something that I... Uh, want to talk about racism, cultural appropriation. Um, there's a lot of little, very subtle racism, I think. Um, sometimes can even be more harmful than, well, maybe not more harmful, but it's so discreet that you don't notice it and then it builds up over time and then you realize that it's kind of impacted a whole culture's um, viewpoint. Yeah. Um, toxic masculinity is something that I care about. Um, unconscious bias and just like, thinking about privilege in a new way. So how do I represent that in my food and in, yeah, in my life? So, so how do you represent that in your food? And how do you use AR augmented and virtual reality tools to do that? Yeah, so I'm working on this like VR meets immersive theater sort of thing, um, <laughs> exhibit that is happening hopefully later this year. And so the idea is that people walk in they're outfitted with a VR headset and they are at this futuristic bar um, in which, in this future, let's say it's 2050, um, all our lives are constantly on live stream. Right now you have the option to live stream and then you can you know, regurgitate your content later. But what if um, our lives are just like constantly on? And this is not like an idea about surveillance or anything like that, but it was just, you know, everybody just kind of knows what you're doing um, at all times if they want to tune into your channel. Um, in that technical world, you always have access to what we define as truth. Um, but I think the interesting thing about people and what is one of the big communication and breakdowns is that truth is not reality that we want to believe. Truth is just this uh, thing that we can use for our own realities, to feed it or to reject it or whatever. Um, so when the guest comes in, they are outfitted, they're giving the premise, um, they're outfitted with a headset, and they're listening to a couple of different conversations around them. The One of each of the conversations relates a precisely to a theme such as racism and cultural appropriation. Um, they listen for a few minutes. Um, it's interesting what these people are talking about and they're kind of talking in a kind of a direct way and also in a in a way where, you know, I can say, hey, I saw you do this earlier today and you can still reject it and say, well, you don't understand or I didn't actually do that or you don't know what you saw. Um, and after they uh, listen to this conversation, they are presented a plate of food that represents this idea in a much more uh, holistic way. So for uh, in the instance of racism and cultural appropriation, what if you had two representations of collard greens, one that is um, perhaps kind of in a simpler presentation and it's uh, presented on wood and out of the, like a wood plate of some sort, but out of that wood plate, you have kind of this like tree trunk-esque thing that's like bound with lots of cotton and shackles and such, but it gr- out of that grows this like porcelain plate where then you have a perfect and deconstructed piece of collard green. Um, stuff like that. Um, and, and how do you use augmented and virtual reality tools to do that? Um, so the VR is, uh, you would have to film it and it would be a, it would be basically you're watching the VR film before you come in and then you... You watch the film and eat, and they're in combination. Um, I don't know if I want to use AR for this particular one, but one of the things that I've been 
thinking about for AR is if you have this sort of plate and this food, you can augment different, you can augment poetry on it, you can augment a painting on it, or you can augment things that come out of it. Um, perhaps like if you had an ashtray full of certain cuisines food and you had like a phoenix come out of it in augmented reality and what does that represent um being able to tell a little bit more of a story so do you think that's that's in the future for mainstream dining dining that that's going to be less of a like a one-off and and more of a like we're just going to start seeing that at restaurants more often i think it will depend i think right now ar is really taken off in terms of because AR can be just like a glorified qr code so you see it in like cereal boxes people are like scanning their cereal boxes and looking at I don't know, like cute cartoons or something. But I think we have a ways to go in terms of bridging the gap on making it not just about entertainment, but about something bigger. And does the audience even want to see that? We're nobody sure. Um, so I, I hope I hope that that's where things are going, and I hope that that's uh, what people are going to demand in terms of their dining experiences, that it's a more holistic dining experience. You know, just how farm-to-table people, like, at first it was a, a trend, but now people are genuinely like, where is my supply chain? We want transparency. Everybody kind of has to do it. Hopefully everybody will say, you know what, I don't want to just eat stuff. I want, I want all of this to mean something, so do that now. Yeah. We'll see. All right. That seems like a great note to end this conversation on. Uh, this has been fun. Maybe we should do this again. Uh, Maybe every, we'll do it every season. Uh, once a season, yeah. Um, Give us feedback. Yeah. Email us at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Message us on Instagram at whyfoodpodcast. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you've, you've been listening to the Why Food Podcast. Um, Thank thanks. you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, Ethan, for hosting me. <laughs> thanks, Jenny, for hosting me. <laughs> and uh, thanks to Blind by the Red crickets for our theme music and david tattisher and vitor hirsch for our for awesome engineering join us next time thank you thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Well, that's history of mine.